0: Asian Hustle Network would like to remind you to make time for your health so you don't lose time for the things you love. An updated COVID vaccine restores protection that has decreased over time, including protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and the worst effects of COVID. If your last COVID vaccine or booster was before September 2022, it's time for an updated vaccine. Find updated COVID vaccines at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview
1: Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals.
0: We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Rich Ting. Actor Rich Ting was born in Los Angeles, California, and is a fourth generation Asian American. Growing up as an athlete, Ting played collegiate football at Yale University while earning a BA, and then went on to achieve a dual JD and MBA degree. Soon after achieving his scholastic goals, he realized that he needed to switch careers and pursue his passion for the entertainment industry, and specifically as an actor. Ting is most well known for playing the iconic character Bolo in the HBO Max drama series Warrior, a television series inspired by the writings and work of Bruce Lee, and is unforgettable on Amazon season four of the critically acclaimed The Man in the High Castle as Captain Ichima, a driven, ambitious young detective in the Japanese Kempeitai. Tim currently lives in Los Angeles, California, with his wife and teacup Maltese, Somi. In addition to working in film and television, he's still active in the martial arts world, loves to travel to exotic places, and is a true foodie at heart. Rich, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: We're very excited to have you today. So we'd love to know, what was your upbringing like? rich and what was your family dynamic like Like, what was it like growing up in la
1: yes i was born and raised in los angeles in the south bay i was born in torrance as well as where my mom was born and my grandparents and we just the japanese side of my family has been there for generations and it wasn't until later that i moved to the bay area to finish junior high school and high school in san francisco my upbringing was very atypical as far as what I've heard. Obviously, when you're growing up, you don't know you're different or you don't know you're doing things, not the you know, the usual way, so to speak. It wasn't until I grew up older and I had more Asian Asian American friends that were kind of, I would say confused on what I did and what I didn't do growing up as a kid. My parents, for one, you know, they were third third generation Asian American. So their priorities in life were a lot different to the times that we were growing up as kids. And by we, I'm including my brothers and myself, I have two younger brothers. And it was a household where sports and athletics was definitely emphasized over the academics, not to say that it was more important than schoolwork, but we were already raised to assume that we would get good grades. So that was almost like a given, like you're, that's, you're going to do that. So let's focus now on the extracurriculars like football, basketball, baseball, track, martial arts. And as far as I can remember, people always ask me this question, especially like even my wife, when we first met, I was telling her like how my childhood was like, I never remember having any free time. Literally, it was go to school, lunchtime, I'm doing homework because I'm not going to have time to do homework at night when because of practices. 3 o'clock school ends. I'm participating, for example, in the fall with flag football at my school. And then that's an hour of practice. And then I would jump in the car and my mom would take me to another location to do an hour of Taekwondo practice. And then I would jump back in the car. And this is a typical Monday, to be honest. And then by 5.30-ish, we would end up at Pop Warner practice at another field, which was full contact football. I started that at the age of eight years old. While eating dinner and snacks in the car, changing multiple times in, you know, from flag football uniform to taekwondo outfit to a uh, pop Warner football, full, full helmet, shoulder pads, thigh pads, everything. And then I wouldn't get home to about eight o'clock, you know, and my parents would give me kind of a time limit to do homework and to finish it because I would have to get rest so I could do it again the next day, you know, and so. We didn't speak any different languages in the house. I grew up speaking English, but my parents only spoke English. We took off our shoes. We had a rice cooker. I mean, that was probably the extent of my Asian culture in the house. I'm blessed now that I look back because I think that kind of lifestyle really kept me out of trouble and really kept me kind of in my lane and focused on the goal, which back then was to play collegiate football at a very good institution
0: yeah wow, that is really interesting. I think it's it's a very unique experience because for a lot of Asian parents, they put so much emphasis on you have to study. you have to work hard. You have to do your homework. And then I think that intimidates a lot of children, especially when you're growing up, you're young, you you feel like you need to put all your emphasis and your focus and time into school and your homework, right? But they really focused on sports and curricular activities at that age. You know, now looking back, obviously, you mentioned that you feel blessed. but, at that age, did you feel like it was something that you were dreading? Like, oh, I wish I had more time to play. Or was it something that you knew was good for you because it taught you discipline?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think it's a little bit of both, to be honest. I remember, and my mom never lets me forget, let me put it that way, how I wanted to quit Pop Warner football. If you can imagine being eight years old, 85 pounds, with the same size helmet that I wore at Yale in college, I wore when I was eight years old. I guess I had a huge head when I was a kid, but the 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 padding and the weight of all the equipment on an eight year old body, and then they're telling you to run in August up and down the field in a hundred degree heat. It, it's not it's not the most enjoyable experience, you know. Um, but my mom definitely made it a point to tell me like, you're not quitting. You're gonna man up and you're gonna do this because she knew how much I loved it. She just knew maybe I didn't like the, the process of it, right? But come game day, when you're eight, nine, 10 years old, playing at the high school field under the lights on a Saturday night, it's pretty cool. you know. And my mom knew that. So she, she kept me literally, again, in my lane about that. Similar to Taekwondo. There came a point, I think, in middle school, where I had been doing it so much. And I think I was one belt away from getting my first three black belt and I kind of plateaued, I think, internally, if that even makes sense. If you can plateau as an eleven-year-old, you know that sounds so weak now, but I did. There was a lot of stuff going on in my life at the time, I guess. And my mom's like, she gave me an ultimatum. She gave me a deal. She was like, "You get your black belt, and then you can tell me if you want to quit." And I'll never forget that because I got my black belt, and I fell in love with it again, and it just propelled me to the future. So, in hindsight. What I always say is my parents, I think, raised us because of their generational advancement, let's say, because they weren't the immigrant generation. They just had this different perspective and they saw sports as the vehicle to get us to that next level. You're correct in what you just said about traditionally a lot of Asian parents don't look at athletics or sports to help. Their kids, if anything, look at it as a negative distraction, right? But I think that's just a product of their generation. A lot of people told me you have to go to Chinese school, you have to, you know, learn a language, you have to play an instrument because those things are going to get you into college, or at least help. And it wasn't until I mean it happened in my family with my grandparents. You know, I had immigrant Chinese grandparents who were always telling us, stop playing sports, you need to go to Chinese school, you need to go to SAT class, you got to do all these things, which we were doing all of them except going to language school, but we were doing fine in in the classroom. But it wasn't until they realized literally, when I got accepted to Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Columbia, Dartmouth, Brown, UPenn, all the IVs accepted me. They were like, Oh, my God, like, what? How? And then I told them, it's like, granted, I have the numbers and the grades, but you got to have something else, whether that's playing a musical instrument, or you got into Juilliard as an eighth grader, right? Or you're, um, you, have this, you have this background that no one else has, or you can play a sport. These are all vehicles that help you get ad- admitted to Ivy League schools, if not other, you know, prestigious institutions across the country. So when my own grandparents and our own family saw that, and we're like, oh my gosh, that's crazy, their eyes opened up. So I think, that's why I said I'm blessed now because I look back and I really give all the credit to my parents because of obviously they are the ones steering the ship. Right. And so, like I said, there were times when I felt like quitting. There were times when I felt like other friends, they do sleepovers and they hang out and they go to the movies. And I just never had time. It wasn't that my parents didn't let me. I never had the time. And so looking back, I have mixed emotions about that, but I'm blessed today to be doing what I'm doing, to be, to, to have done what I have done in college and in grad school and in life that I have no regrets about that.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. And I think you bring up a really great point because for, for, for me, for example, my parents, you know, they put me into Chinese school and they thought that it was a component that would help me excel better in school. It would really be, you know, good on my resume. I don't know, you know, but I think (laughs) that they don't think about sports in that same way. They think it's a distraction, like you mentioned, and your parents being third generation. I think that plays a big role into, you know, how they raised you and what they thought would be really beneficial for you, because a lot of immigrants like or people who, you know, our parent. a lot of our parents are immigrants. And I think the way that they think is very traditional. So they don't really think outside of the status quo. They don't really go against the status quo. They think like, oh, because I've been taught this way, it has to be like this, right? Because they want to follow tradition. But in America, all they teach us is be innovative, you know, challenge the status quo, you know, go against the grain and mm-hmm. do what you want. And I think that plays a lot into how your parents raise you too. Like you have to do something that really makes you stand out whether that be, you know, some sort of extracurricular activity, music or sports, et cetera. And I think that really goes to show like how they raised you as when you were a child to like, you know, put you into these sports. And as a child, it's hard for us to know like, Oh, what is the outcome going to be if I continue to play the sport? Right. As a child, you just want to, it's very easy for us to say I want to quit because we don't like doing it, but for us to go through the process and actually be able to achieve something, maybe it's not a medal, but you're able to learn something or gain something out of it, then it it makes, it all makes sense. Like, Oh, that's why my, my mom or my dad, you know, forced me or, you know, convinced me to yeah. stay and and continue to do this sport or continue to play this instrument. Um, But yeah, I think that's a really interesting experience that I haven't really heard about. So thank you so much for sharing that.
1: No, I think no, no problem. I mean, I thank you for asking because I, you know, Nowadays, we're more relevant. And I say we as an Asian American in the athletic world, you know, yeah. back then before social media, before all this stuff could be easily accessed, right? No one really knew or saw Asians like myself or you participating in that sports and excelling in that field. So that was obviously a little weird. But I, I again, I, it all goes back to my parents. I told them at a very young age, my dream is to play collegiate football at the Division One level. And what they promised me is that they were going to help me get, fulfill that dream. So whether that was telling me not to quit or to man up or to like, you know, go to sleep earlier because we got to wake up or we're not going to have a summer this year because we're going to different camps to get recruited, you know, all these sacrifices, it actually led up to me being able to play at that next level. So again, I, I just want to, you know, give, give praise and thanks to, to my, to my folks, because obviously you know, that's, what's ironic, right? You ask an eight-year-old, like, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to be, you know, play football at the collegiate level. And then the next question is, okay, go to sleep. So you can go to practice and you're like, I don't want to go to sleep. Right. So it's funny because I mean, how do how is anyone that young supposed to really know they, we can all have dreams, but how do we know how to achieve those? Right. You kind of have to have faith in your parentals and into your seniors to, to guide you because of just their life experiences ahead of you.
0: Oh, yeah, definitely. So you graduated from Archbishop Reardon High School in San Francisco and then majored in history and humanities, modern in Asian American studies at Yale.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and then I did read that you pursued a law firm job in downtown L.A. for a bit after earning your dual JD and MBA degree. What specifically what was that experience like and what specifically made you want to switch careers and go into acting? Because that is yeah. that is really different.
1: Right. Um, so the first, the first dream was always to play football at the collegiate level, the division one level. So I checked that box, but ever since I was four years old and I say four years old, because that's when I started Taekwondo, my martial arts study. And the reason I stu- and the reason I started at that age was because that's when I saw Bruce Lee on my television at home. And I saw him not only as a Chinese man on the screen but someone who was powerful and strong because of his martial arts background but he was also acting so there were so many emotions and connections i i got with bruce back in the day that you know when you're four years old i mean how can you possibly know any like you know how can your your brain is still developing you know what i mean maybe not medically maybe i'm off and there's some doctors out there that are gonna tell me i'm wrong about that but you know what i mean it's I saw something that was intriguing because he was on camera. And I think that's when the bug started. And then I became a huge Michael Jackson fan because by later in life, we had moved to Encino and that's where the Jackson family was living. And I actually ended up going to a private school back in the day with Tito Jackson's kids. And so I just felt like they were so close and like I knew them. And we hung out after school before I started doing all these football things back in the day, right? Where I had free time. And so the combination of seeing someone like Bruce Lee of being around, you know, I think at the peak of Michael Jackson and the Jackson family, all that was just so Hollywood to me. And it just made me so intrigued about filmmaking and being on camera and production that it was always in the back of my head. So as I previously told you, I just never had free time to do anything but athletics, because whether it was football season, basketball season, or baseball and track season, there was always a season. So there was never a free period where I could be like, Hey, I want to take some acting classes, or I want to participate in this school play, for example, there was never time for that. So it wasn't until I graduated Yale, and I did my dual dual JD MBA program in grad school, which is kind of ironic to say that I had the most time I've ever had in my life. Because I would have class for, you know, a couple hours in the morning. And then the MBA program was always catered to working people, you know, whether they're executives or, 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 or business people already. So the classes would be after 7pm. So I had this huge gap all of a sudden, of like, you know, four to six hours, sometimes depending on my class schedule at the law school, which was the daytime. And I'm like, well, I, I'm not going to do homework for four hours right now, you know, I'm going to go do other things, I'm going to work out, I'm going to maybe start doing yoga, I'm going to start taking acting classes and really dive into the craft. And so that's how it kind of started. But it started as a hobby just because I was embracing all this free time, finally. And that's when I started, people started to put like, Hey, you should model. Hey, you should do commercials. Hey, you should do. And I was like, okay. And those things, those kind of gigs were very convenient to my schedule because I would only be required to show up for like a photo shoot or like a commercial shoot for like a few hours. It wasn't like going to be a night, like a Monday through Friday schedule, like 4am call time night shoots. And all. it wasn't even close to that. So that kind of massaged the way I got into the business on that on that from that perspective. But then it wasn't until I finished law school and my business school that I went back to LA to take a job in downtown. My cousin and my blood cousin and my and and my uncles are stunt coordinators in Hollywood. They've always been. It's it's an industry where those of us that don't know about it, um, where you're kind of grandfathered in. It's a very tight-knit fraternity just due to trust, safety, and lineage. Like you grow up seeing your dad do these crazy stunts and then you take over. And it's, it's a really about family and trust because of the safety that's involved to do these crazy stunts in the business. So obviously my family knew of my athleticism. They knew of my martial arts background. They obviously knew how I looked and like what I like literally could bring to the camera. And that's when my cousin asked me, if I would be interested in doing stunts, and which I said, not really, because I just survived, you know, 13, 14 years of full contact football injuries here and there, but I don't think I'm ready to take on a car, you know, or light myself on fire or fall from like a 10 story building, even if you're falling to a mat, it's still like, I don't know about that life, right? So Long story short, I also told him, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to take a job at a law firm, and I've worked my whole life to get here, and now you're asking me, and he didn't pressure me, and he does, and I never blame him for this. If anything, I thank him for it. He asked me, he said, okay, well, there's also this opportunity, and I just kept it simple. I said, look, I've always had dreams of pursuing the entertainment world. I've been taking acting classes you know, up until now. Craft-wise, I'm still studying, as we all are, that are still in the business, it's a never-ending process of of learning, which I love. But I was like, I don't know if I can make that leap. So let me talk to the law firm guys. Let me talk to the partners. So I went and talked to the partners and they said, look, do that. That sounds amazing. If it fails, you can come back. And that's honestly all the assurance I needed because I didn't want to burn a bridge with these attorneys and these partners that I had worked so hard the summers before to lock in this position, right? At the same time, I didn't want to bypass an opportunity to fulfill my second dream. And so I made a promise to myself and to my cousin. And I said, I'll do stunts. I'll start just so I can get thrown into the fire, literally, where I'm on a set. I'm seeing how a crew works, how a director directs, how producers work, how stunt and actors coexist to make this amazing product. And I'm just going to take mental notes and absorb as much as I can so that when I do transition to acting, I've already been in the game in some aspect, so to speak. And that's exactly what I did. I mean, next thing I knew, I was on Warner Brothers lot under the Back to the Future clock You know what I mean? There's like tour buses going through our rehearsals and I'm like, oh my God, what am I doing here? Right. And it was the most humbling and also the most, I think the best way to get introduced to this business, because I went in through the stunt world and the stunt world, people do not understand or know because they just don't have access to this information. They are the first people on the set, the last people on the set. They're always building tearing down, rebuilding, fighting. They're doing so many things and they're getting so dirty literally every day just to ensure the safety and protection of not only the cast, but the entire crew and production. And so when you enter through that angle and that department, there's nothing really glamorous about that. You're a worker. You're like almost like a construction worker on a set. And then the actors come in all ready to go and they're there for you know 30 minutes to get their shot and then they leave and everyone caters to them. Meanwhile, the stunt guys have been there since four in the morning and now it's like three in the afternoon and we're not rapping anytime soon. So that really has that, that humbleness, that hardworking mentality, that awareness of how to be safe and to protect others has really stayed with me. And I'm so thankful for it because it's, I think it's the best foundation to have, especially when you go to the other side of the acting, because now you're working with other actors. You're not working with stunt guys all the time, you know? And so to have that kind of that knowledge and experience now it's, it's everything to me.
0: Yeah, that's insane. And yeah, it's a, it's a thankless job you know you're yes. it's the actor who's getting all the praise and exactly. your face is never shown you know but you're doing all the hard strenuous work physical work right and it it really is a thankless job and you know i i'm i hope that you were getting paid money for, you know good money for that oh, no, while you I, were there
1: <laughs> i think i think i think i mean that's another thing that helped that transition from the law firm to stunts the money was never going to be an issue because there was it was a good amount for yeah. what we do and what, what I did. But at the same time, I always knew it wasn't supposed to be about the money. It was supposed right, to right, be right, about right. something that I can do forever. You know, and that's why I love acting. It's because when I'm 95 years old, hopefully I'm playing a 95 year old on something, you know, because that that's the beauty of this game. My dad, you know, he's, a, he's an orthopedic surgeon and, you know, he's older, but he has no intent on retiring because he loves his job. And I think that was contagious to me growing up because I always thought about something like, you know, we never talked about retirement in our house. I always heard other families like, oh, you know, so-and-so's parents are retired. And I was like, what does that mean? You know, and then my dad's like, it means they're done working and now they can enjoy their life. But what I do is my enjoyment. And so if I retire, it's almost killing my entire vibe and my whole, like, like why I wake up every day. And I use that language because I always wanted to find something that I would want to wake up for. And so knowing that I would eventually go into acting, I was like, the money will come. Like, it's not about that. Of course, it made that initial transition from, from law to, to entertainment a little easier because I wasn't going to you know, t- sacrifice one for the other. But then I was sacrificing my body and my livelihood, let's say, right, potentially. So, you know, like I said, just really blessed to have been introduced in that capacity because to this day, um, I think I have a tendency to get a lot of the production assistants in trouble on set. And what I mean by that is as a stunt person, you get your own water, you get your own coffee, you no one cares about what you're doing except your boss, the stunt coordinator. So now when production assistant people ask me, like, can I get you something? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. And then I go get it. Their boss is like, why is Rich going there by himself, right? And I'm like, no, I don't need that catering. It's fine. So I've learned to adjust to the new culture of being an actor. So that's always the joke. Like stunt guy's always be like, dude, relax. And I'm like, no, 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 I got it, you know? So, But again, it's I'm just very... um coming from that law school background and coming from the stunt background and finally, you know, ending up as an actor, as my final destination, I I just bring these different contexts and these different perspectives to the job. And it really gives me no excuse, but to enjoy and to, and to do the best I can because I, I came from a totally different industry. And then I came from a totally different part of the industry in the stunt world. So that's why, you know, work to me is vacation. It's when I'm not working that I'm, I'm dreading it. And it's very, that's the adversity when I'm not working.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I love that your father had taught you that though, that mentality. And, you know, you are supposed to be doing something that you enjoy every day, right? Some people who talk about retirement, they can't wait for retirement. Mm. They can't wait until they, that they're at the age of 65. That just goes to show that you didn't enjoy your time. You yes. know, all that time from when you were working since you were 18 years old, all the way to 65, you didn't enjoy any part of that, and for you to be just so eager for retirement age to come, it's 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 not a good feeling, you know. And no, I it's love sad, that. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that he taught you to you know, make sure that you are passionate about what you do and that you can wake up each morning feeling blessed that you're able Mm -hmm. to do this, that you have the opportunity to do this. Right. And going back to you asking your law firm that you were working at, like, should I do this? Should I pursue this? And for you, for them to say like, yeah, go ahead. This is like a great opportunity. Can you imagine what difference it would be if they were like, no, don't do it. You have to stay with us. That would, I feel like, you know, if I were in your shoes, it would make me feel, oh gosh, like what if I burn this bridge? I have to stay here then. Right. And I exactly. felt like because they gave you that, that, um, that green light, it mm-hmm. it, it was a blessing in disguise because it kind of opened up the doors for you to f- figure out if you even like this or not. And oh, totally. you know, lo and behold, you did. And it all it all worked out in the end.
1: Two things come to mind when you bring that up because one, I always talk about how amazing that meeting was and that conversation with my former attorneys and and partners were because I as you mentioned I was very I was insecure about it because I was like oh my gosh I don't want to burn this bridge I worked so hard to get here but at the same time I've never heard more people in one industry aka the law industry tell me if you don't have to do this don't do this because we're all doing this. And when we retire, then I'm going to do what I wanted to do. Right. So a lot of them are very encouraging to just be like, do it now. I know it's hard to make that decision in life because you're so young and you don't have the maturity to know what's to come, but take it from us that we'll be here, go do it. And the second thing I always say, it's amazing what confidence can do because knowing that they had my back, And I even had other attorneys that were at other law firms that were trying to recruit me for them. And I told them the same thing. And they said, oh, my gosh, please, please go blow up and do that and represent for us. Right. And those those being the Asian-American attorneys. And they said, if it all fails, you can come back. And I just felt so bulletproof after that. You know, I was like, I'm doing this. And my plan B is a great plan B, but I'm not I don't want to I don't I didn't want to exercise that plan B if I don't have to. And so that's why I always say it like, like when you're that young and you have that much confidence and you have that much support from strangers, like you're, you're limitless, like you're immortal. And, and I, and I give credit to all that, to all those people that had my back then, because I look back on my twenties now and I'm like, Oh my God, I cannot believe I, I went there to film or I did that project or, you know, like what was I thinking? But it all started adding up and making sense. And, Look look what we're doing now. You know, I'm talking to you about my 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 so-called career, even though I feel like I'm just starting out to Oh my
0: goodness. No, not at all. You are amazing. Um so I would love to know, you know, how did you end up transitioning out of stunt? And then Mm -hmm. what was the entertainment world like when you were first starting out? Because I mean, in the Asian community, we talk about this all the time, but Asian representation, we don't see a lot of it, especially back then. Like there Mm -hmm. was not a lot of Asian faces on screen. Um, and for Asians, it was, it was hard for us to look at role models or like think of role models because we couldn't, we didn't see them that often, right? Um, especially as a child, it was just hard for us to imagine like, oh, that's maybe something that I can do because <laughs> I actually see them on screen. But at that time, it wasn't the case. So want to know like, how did you transition? Yeah. And then what was it like for you starting out as an Asian American actor?
1: Yeah, both those go hand in hand. I mean, number one, it makes me feel old because I got to start off by saying, well, back when I was that age, you know, we didn't see it, but it was such a different time back in 2007-ish, late 2000s. And I remember being very open to my stunt brothers, let's say back then and saying, you know, I really want to pursue acting. They knew I was doing so many different things. They knew I was modeling. They knew I was doing commercial work. They also knew I was, you know, acting and trying to pick up any roles and and stuff I could on on the side. Um, But it wasn't until I think the last stunt job I did was the Green Hornet when Seth Rogen did it with Jay Chow. And I knew that was going to be my last project on the stunt side because I had accepted a job on a feature film in Southeast Asia and Vietnam that prior to coming on to that show in, in, in LA. And the promise I made to myself before this was, I had this mentality. No one ever told me this. No one ever taught me this. It was just something that I came up impulsively from my gut and I've throughout my life and we're not going to go into all these different scenarios, but I've, I trust my instinct and I trust my gut. It's, it's gotten me out of a lot of weird situations and it's, I just have a lot of self-trust in other words. And I remember, I remember like it was yesterday, to be honest, I was on the freeway in LA and I just knew I was like, no, Producer studios, if they're going to cast an Asian character in that time period, they're not going to look in L.A. They may say they're going to look and cast out of L.A. in the U.S., but they're going to go to Asia. They're going to go to Hong Kong. They're going to go to they're going to go to Thailand. They're going to go to mainland China. This is when South Korea wasn't on the map yet as an as an entertainment mogul yet. But I was like, because it's happened. Like, I, And I happened to be working on The Green Hornet which with, with Jay Chow, right? And then even before that, I worked on G.I. Joe with Lee Byung-hun, who was huge and so big in Korea that they were kind of forced to be like, oh my gosh, we should use the South Korean actor, right? And that's what I always knew. The roles for us Asian men prior to that in the US were like the recurring or the guest stars, or if you were a series regular you know, like BD Wong is an icon because he was on that show forever as the forensics guy. And that's all we knew. Right. And then if there's another show, the Asian guys always like the medic or like the forensics guy again. And you're like, OK, so that's it. So we're all going out for this one role. So I made a promise to me. I said, look, I'm going to even though I'm fourth generation, my grandparents were born in L.A., Hollywood is not going to look at me as or consider me because I don't come with a following or a country behind me literally so I said I'm gonna have to go to Asia I've never been to Asia I'm gonna have to go to Asia make some noise blow up so that a producer in LA goes oh my gosh who's this guy and then they're gonna be like oh my really he's from LA you speak English wow what are you doing there trying to get your attention and I came up with this strategy all by myself one day So when I got this random opportunity to do this film that was going to be sponsored and funded by the government of Vietnam to commemorate a thousand years of Hanoi, which is their capital city, they wanted to make it an historical piece, a period piece, kind of like a crouching tiger hidden dragon piece, but they wanted to bring in one fictional character that was going to be this general from Thailand or wherever that was back in the day, who one of the kings recruited as their military general. And they were looking for a non-blood Vietnamese character. So through the networking and whatever, it landed in front of me. And I accepted it because I was like, this is the show that I'm going to go do. It was a movie at the time. And then due to the government situation in Vietnam, they turned it into a 300 episode series, literally. So I took that and I said, this is what what I'm going to do. I'm going to go. I'm going to be an actor on this. I'm going to be a lead and I'm going to make some noise in Southeast Asia. And and to sum it up, in two years, not only did I do a Korean drama in Vietnam, simultaneously shooting this period piece all over the country from the North to the South, it worked because I'm I'm not going to say his name, but somebody very big contacted me that was a producer, talent manager um, in LA. And he said, I have a project for you your 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 headshot that's when we used to give headshots he wouldn't even give headshots out anymore it's so crazy like he's like your headshot landed on my desk and I watched your reel and I think you're the next thing so I would like to help you out and I want to know when you're coming back ironically it was a month before I wrapped so I came back to LA and then booked my first feature film in Hollywood. So my strategy worked. And that's kind of how that's the short version of how I transitioned from stunts to acting and got my first gig, literally.
0: Wow, that is crazy. Yeah, I have, a, I have a question. Um, Was there a reason why they were looking for a non Vietnamese blood actor to fill the role?
1: Yes, because as what they were was what was communicated to me at the time was that everyone else, obviously was Vietnamese by blood, and they wanted to cast in vietnam however there was this one story and i remember i can't forget remember the gentleman's name but the writer of this of this project was the top historical writer in the whole country and there was one story that he wanted to focus on about how this one king conquered all these different territories around southeast asia into china and the reason why he was so successful was because he would see who his enemy was and he would recruit or keep alive the best in all those fields to add to his so-called army. So there was a fictional character that it supposedly did happen, but that's why they wanted to bring someone else that was obviously Asian, but didn't look traditionally like he was Vietnamese by blood. Yeah. And at the time, I had really long hair. like My hair was all the way down to my waist. And it just worked out. Like I I looked the part. uh, I was a foreigner. It just everything lined up. Again, going back to your other question, I couldn't have predicted how that law meeting was going to go. And I asked them if I could leave and pursue this entertainment thing. And I've never forced things in my career. I've worked hard, but I've never, if someone said, and I don't mean if someone says, no, I give up. What I mean is I had the meeting with the law firm. If they said no, 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 then that would have been a different outcome. But I I took it, they said, great, do it. I did it. I went to Southeast Asia. I took the role. It worked out. I didn't try and just kept going after this role because I was like, this is the role. That's kind of the mentality I've always kept throughout my whole career. Of course, I want opportunities, but if I I, I don't believe in forcing things, but I don't believe in giving up. But I just need to you need to understand your environment and kind of the universe and in my career so far, everything has happened for a reason. And so take, like I said, my hair was long naturally. I looked different. I, it just lined up. I can't even explain it. And that's why I ended up in Vietnam.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. It definitely, you know, I, yes, it could be the universe, but I also think that yes, although you didn't force things to happen, you were very, Open to opportunities, right? And I think that's what a lot of people can't even get to, right? Like they're scared of opportunities, so they don't they don't really seek for them. But because there was this opportunity lined up for you, like, hey, like let's go try it out. And I think Mm -hmm. that that's what makes the difference that you are willing to take that first step. Like if it doesn't work out for the first time, then maybe it's not meant to be. And so I love the fact that you're mentioning like you don't really force it. Um, because some people try over and over and over again, maybe mm-hmm. that's that career, or maybe that path isn't meant for them. Maybe they're meant for something else. Right. But exactly. they spend all this time focusing on this one thing that they want to pursue when they could have, you know, done something else. And been and I don't mean like career, that. I
1: don't mean career change, right, right, right. right? I mean, yeah. like, for example, if you're trying to write one project and you're not getting anywhere with it, then right. just transition, start, write it, write a different, pro- get, let it breathe is what I always say. Right. So I'm not saying like, give up, like, Oh, don't try to force it. Like we are just talking about roles for Asians. It was non-existent. So what was I going to do? Give up? No, I just kept at it, you know, but there's certain situations where, like I said, I don't want to burn my tires out, but I still need to get to that destination. Right. So I'm going to try an an alternate vehicle, a different route, but I still, and that's what I mean by not giving up, but at the same time, not forcing it. Right. So it's a thin line, but like I said, that's kind of the the mentality I've always used and applied in my career so far. And it, it got me back to LA literally, which is crazy.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, it it is very crazy. I love how strategic you were thinking about it too. And it actually worked. Um, So talk about how you went back to LA. Um, What was the first role that you had when you went back to LA? And to date what is the role that you were most proud about today
1: okay so those are two different projects obviously the first one I was in and I always said this like my life dream was to be in a Hollywood feature film I was able to check that box right away which was insane because now I'm like now what do I do right so I keep going but when I came back to LA and it was crazy because in Vietnam at the time because it, it, it it's communist there's only so many channels on television And one of their channels was always dedicated to Korean pop. And I didn't realize how huge of a fan base Southeast Southeast Asia was even back then of Korean entertainment. And so I'd already been a fan of K-pop because when I went to Yale, the majority of Asian students at Yale were Korean. And because of my mix, they just assumed I was Korean too. So I I mean, we're talking like Yusin Jun, we're talking SES, we're talking one time, we're talking like turbo we're talking all these like Janusian we're talking all these OG groups that I had no idea and all of a sudden in a week I was like listening to all of them and then I was watching K dramas and really finding an identification cuz I kind of looked like Korean actors like I identified with them physically so I'd already kind of gotten on the bandwagon back then and this is you know late 90s right and so when I went to Vietnam which was a lot later a lot later after that and I saw these same artists that were had like, progressed in their career. And I saw these dramas with, you know, I was like, oh, I remember that guy from that other drama. I was very in the loop with the Korean entertainment being in Southeast Asia. So I say all this because ironically, when I got back to L.A., there was a dance film from the original writer director from Save the Last Dance with Julia Stiles and then The First Step Up with Channing Tatum. He was now doing, and of course, there was a bunch of other step ups, but he was responsible for the first one with Channing Tatum. And now he was going to do his third dance story with Derek Hough from Dancing with the Stars and K-pop singer Boa at the time. And I had known about this project because she teased it when I was in Vietnam. And I was like, oh, my God, Boa, because at that time, I believe Rain had just done ninja I forget it was it was that transition period where a lot of these k-pop stars were starting to take big roles in Hollywood production so I was like oh my gosh Boa is gonna do her thing now and I was a huge fan of Boa from back in the day same
0: same and like yeah oh loved like
1: I still am and so when I got to LA and I got this script I was like oh my god this is the script like this is the film and like I said it worked out I was able to co-star along with Boa and um William Lee who is my industry older brother. You know, we've, I watched him growing up and then to be on my first feature film with him as as my literally like an older brother in the business. It was just such a crazy experience. And then Boa's here with her team from SM town. And I was like, and CJ Entertainment was doing it with, it was just like, what is going on? This is insane. So that was my first gig, my first feature film. And it was not only memorable, but meeting Boa and her team, both SM Town and and all the people that worked for CJ then, that created a bridge at the time that I would later cross to work in Korea, but had no idea I was forming that in the moment then, right? So I'm extremely thankful for, and the movie was called Make Your Move. So I'm extremely thankful for that whole experience because it led to so many things later in my career. Um, the second question you asked was the, my most memorable role, I believe. And that hands down is Bolo in warrior and HBO Max's warrior, because that was a full circle project for me. I started martial arts at the age of four because of Bruce Lee. I grew up obviously continued to continuing to be a fan of him, but more importantly, applying his philosophy to just my life. I would read his quotes. I would read his books. I would study his tape. I self-taught myself nunchucks based on his performances. I self-taught myself a lot of martial art weapons, just rewinding beta tapes and VHS tapes back in the day as a kid. So to me, he was not only an iconic figure on camera, but also, like I said, I carry a lot of his philosophies to the present day. So while I'm growing up, football, basketball, taekwondo, everything, going to Yale, going to grad school, stunts, transitioning to acting. He had written this treatment on Warrior before, obviously, he passed in the early 70s, and it had sat in Shannon Lee's in his daughter's garage for all these generations, for all these decades, right? While I'm growing up, it's in the garage, As I'm getting older and starting to get into the business, Justin Lin calls Shannon Lee and is like, hey, what's up with that treatment that your dad did? I heard there's a rumor, there's a script. And she's like, I have it. They pitch it, Cinemax, which is under the HBO umbrella at the time, decides to pick it up. I'm watching a show called Banshee in real time on Cinemax with the showrunner, Jonathan Tropper, starring Hoon Lee. I'm like, this is an insane show. I love this. Like, who wrote this? Who's show running? This is insane material. They all get together, Jonathan Tropper, Justin Lin, and Shannon Lee at HBO and say, we're going to make Warrior. Now let's cast it. And I originally went out for the lead, Assam, and then they called me back and they're like, actually, can you read for Bolo? And that to me was like, I literally remember it. I started laughing when my agent called me because I was like, they want me to read for Bolo? Because as a kid growing up on all these traditional teams like football and basketball and baseball in these mostly African-American Latin environments that I was playing in, I was always not only the only Asian, but physically I was big. So naturally, everyone used to make fun of me and call me Bolo or, or Chung Lee from Bloodsport when Bolo Young played and with uh, acted with Jean-Claude Van Damme. And so now full circle, I'm you know young into my acting career and they're like, we think he's perfect for Bolo. And I was like, oh my God, like I'm going to book this and this is going to be crazy. And I did, we booked it. We shot it in South Africa in Cape Town. I mean, that's a whole nother story where you know, obviously everyone knows Nelson Mandela and his whole fight for to end apartheid and civil rights. And to know that warrior never got made in the seventies because of the similar discrimination Bruce encountered in Hollywood you know, and even going back to like the first Kung Fu where, you know, David Carradine played a a full Asian character, even, you know, there's all these things. And then now we're shooting in 2017 in Cape Town, South Africa, you know, like the motherland, literally. So you put all this in the pot and we haven't even gotten to set yet. You know what I mean? Like I haven't even done anything yet. It was already just crazy it was already so memorable it was already such an honor it was still it's still kind of unbelievable to be honest i say this all the time but it's facts the fact that i have a great relationship with shannon lee the blood daughter of bruce lee the fact that i was one of his leads in his treatment that he wrote before he passed and was able to contribute to his legacy people always like rich you're prolonging his legacy i'm like no i can't even say that it's i'm i'm just I just need to continue his work. He's a legend. Like, no one can help him. Like, no one can help Bruce Lee's legacy, right? So when I think of all that, it gets really overwhelming. And that's why not only was I a fan of Bolo Young and Bruce Lee, but to play Bolo in a Bruce Lee written project under the HBO Max umbrella, it it just it's it's a lot to absorb and to take in. And to this day, I'm still. I'm still, I'm still like, someone needs to pinch me sometimes because it's that big to me because of all the personal connections.
0: Yeah. It's, it's amazing how everything really aligned. Right. And because it also took place in San Francisco in the late 1880s. Exactly. And and you grew up partially between LA and San Francisco, you know, went to school in San Francisco. It must've been so symbolic for you and meaningful for you to take on this opportunity when you signed up for the role of Assam, did they not have that same sign-up process for Bolo, or how did that how did that happen?
1: You know, I think I think other actors will will understand this, but for those of us that aren't in the industry, or those of you that aren't in the industry, you know, th- I think that's kind of a of a casting situation where they bring in everyone that they think could play the main role. And then off of that, they see your auditions, they interact with you, they see your tapes, and then they kind of are able to have like a sit down with the entire crew and go, you know what, he would be great for this and that and that. So it doesn't happen a lot that way, but it has happened in other roles that I've booked where I've gone in for one character and they go, he would be great for this character. You know, the same thing happened for um, this recent show, Netflix, on Netflix, I did called Partner Track. Uh, it's me and Desmond Chiam who play brothers. And right. I actually read for Desmond's role that he eventually booked first and I didn't know the behind the scenes. And so then they called me back, it was kind of like a, a Sambolo situation where they called me in for that role and they're like, he'd be great for the older brother, you know? And I didn't even know that older brother existed yet. Just like I didn't know Bolo existed in the script yet. Cause obviously they don't share that information with you. So it happens, it happens more than you think, but I think it's just one of those, internal casting procedures, things that yeah. mm-hmm. I have nothing to do with. So. Yeah,
0: No. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you so much for breaking that down because yeah, I don't know anything about the, the casting procedure. So it's just interesting going into that. And you yeah, sometimes it's it.
1: very clear. Like sometimes mm-hmm. they're like, we want him and then boom, boom, boom. And then sometimes, you know, it's fair to say that even the creatives don't know. So they yeah. need, they want to see what's out there, what their options are, you know? So I think it's, I think it's great in that respect because it, it exposes everyone to yeah, yeah. to the creatives.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, thank you so much for sharing that. That was so I I when you told me that story, I literally got chills. You know, you after you got connected with Shannon and it, yeah. it was it was it must have been such a monumental milestone and and moment in your life. Um and I think it all just connected and aligned so well. Um and the fact that, you know, you brought up you know, you growing up and people were calling you Bolo, it's just, it, yeah, it all just aligned. It all I can't, connected I can't so make well. This up,
1: you know what <laughs> it's, it, it's a movie in itself, to be honest. And um, it's still it's still weird to me in the most positive way. You know, I, I always try not to think too much about it. I'm just, to just, like I said, to be in Bruce Lee's world. I always said, if I could just have worked on Warrior one day, that would have been epic let alone a whole season and I'm playing this iconic character. Like it was just like, whoa, this is, this is, this is insane.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we'd love to know from your perspective, Rich, how do you see the future of Asian and Asian American representation on screen? Um, After, you know, so many years being in the entertainment industry, I'm sure you've seen a lot of things change. We'd love to know your, your outlook on what the future looks like for the Asian American community.
1: Well, first, you know, I I think there's been so many people that have come before me that have really carved this path for us, like myself and, and other younger generations to follow. A perfect example is Michelle Yeoh. I mean, she is getting recognized now for things she should have been recognized decades ago. And the ignorance and I think the lack of accessibility for the general population to see what us Asian American actors, Asian actors, have the capabilities to do and and what we've already done. I always say we've been here already. You know, you just haven't shifted the light onto us. And so, on one end, I celebrate Michelle because she is an iconic mogul in our industry. But also, it also makes me frustrated because people are now recognizing her, and she's older, and she's been doing this forever. So on. I'll take the silver lining, which is people are seeing her and it's shining more light on the AAPI community within the industry. But like what I initially said was, I have to give credit where credit's deserved. And there's people that have come before me, people like William Lee, people like Russell Wong, people that I watched growing up. And so to be in the position where I am now, which I always say, I'm still very young and green in the business. There's so much more I want to do. There's so much more I have to do. But currently in 2023, this is the time. People used to tell me in 07 and 08, oh, Rich, you're coming in at a good time. And I'd be like, okay, I trust you, but I don't really see it. I don't feel it. Like, If anything, there's nothing really positive going on for us. But now, I mean, I remember the year Warrior debuted. It was the same year Crazy Rich Asians came out. And I remember we were both at this one function together and I was like, this is insane. Like the the crazy rich Asians, this epic feature film, now warrior, this Bruce Lee inspired TV show. We're, we're making moves, you know, and from there, we've seen other shows and other spinoffs and whatnot that focus more on the Asian stories. I recently just did a pilot for Disney this past summer about Vietnamese Asian baby girls in OC in Orange County. And it's such a it's not Chinese, Japanese Korean. It's like we're shedding light on these micro communities and we're peeling the layers back because, you know, a lot of us Asian Americans that grew up in certain areas, we all know we existed. We all know there's not one one type as Hollywood has traditionally portrayed us in. You know, there's there's so many variations and and subdivisions of Asians in America, literally. So the fact that we are not a point where, for example, partner check on Netflix, where you have a Korean-American lead, Arden Cho. But then the story navigates to a Chinese family where me, Desmond and Kelvin Han Yi, who plays our dad, is kind of the B storyline about this merger going together. Like just the fact that you have a Korean and then there's light within the script about a Korean and a Chinese situation. A lot of people may not understand that, but we do, okay? And also the fact that the kids that Desmond and I play are not immigrant kids. We've been here for a minute, just like we have, or just like I have specifically. And then we focus on another project I just did, Asian Baby Girl, where it focuses on three Vietnamese gangster girls from the OC coming up. I mean, I think that speaks volumes right now. And then you have everything everywhere with Michelle and Key, at the same time hitting like there's so many things on 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 the highest level, let alone there's so many indie projects and short films and all these other things that are happening because of these big things that have inspired the younger generation to do and to show them that there is opportunity. You don't have to be fearless. You can be an actor of Asian descent in Hollywood the guest stars, the recurrings, like all the stories that are on television now, they're incorporating Asians all the time. You know, you you go on deadline any day, there's going to be something about Asians on deadline, you know, and even what you what you guys do on your platform. Like there's so much content now, it's crazy. But then again, there's always been, thank God to social media and all these platforms we can now just expose what we do. So I, I think it's I think it's a fabulous time for young creative, young actors, anyone inspiring to study the craft, to even pursue the craft. Like now's the time. And you're hearing it from me, someone who was told the same thing a decades ago, right? Like I'm saying now's the time. It's a really special moment for us and we need to take full advantage of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely agree. And I, I think you bring up a good point about how, you know, we're seeing more films incorporate different ethnicities into mm-hmm. those roles like you mentioned partner track we have arden korean and then you know you bring in the the chinese families chinese characters and i i do like the representation right and an asian baby girl that are representing the vietnamese girls and vietnamese community and it's different from how we were seeing it back then when like they just needed an asian character and they would bring in any asian character as long as they looked asian then they would fill the role right yeah. and i love that they're bringing more representation for those different ethnicities and i do think that it's interesting how you know michelle Yo, for example she's been here for a long long time she's been in the industry for a long time but no one's really said her name until you know until recently literally until, recently. yeah Literally recently until everything, everywhere, all at once. And for those who were before us, those who were in the entertainment industry before us, I feel like they put in so much work to lay the foundation for us, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't hear about their names until, for example, Michelle Yeoh, she comes out with a whole hit movie. And I feel like we have to give them justice for the work that they've done, right? And Definitely the thing that we can do right now is just to continue saying their names, right? Continue mm-hmm. honoring the work that they've done in the past for us, whether they're still in the industry or they're not in the, in the industry, we have to recognize that they are a really big reason why we are here today, that they continue to push through and not give up so that they could allow us to have these opportunities today. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the best thing that we can do is just to continue saying their names, continue to honor them, continue to recognize them, and make sure that you know people knew what they did back then what they did for our, for our community back then so that we are able to do the things that we can do today and to pursue these opportunities
1: Agreed. We have no excuse. Yeah. For a generation.
0: Yeah. Yeah, this so is this it. is the perfect time. Um so we are nearing the end of the podcast, Rich. I do want to talk about one thing. Um you know, recently you served as the grand marshal leading the San Francisco's Chinese New Year Festival and Parade on February 4th. What was that like? What did you expect going into it? And how did it turn out? I want to hear about it.
1: Yes. Speaking to me now after it's happened is a different conversation than what you might have, what we might've had prior to February 4th, prior to February 4th, I was very honored and humbled to have this opportunity to be elected by the parade committee in the city of San Francisco, along with Alaska air airlines and all the sponsors to be the grand Marshal of a city that I've spent majority of my life in having watched the parade, having gone to school close to Chinatown. It was a, another full circle moment for me along with warrior having, you know, been written in San Francisco with that backdrop It's just, it was really cool to be asked to do that. Now you're talking to me post parade post festival. It was so much bigger and so much grander than I had anticipated. It was raining a little bit on Saturday, on February 4th, but just a light drizzle. And still with those conditions, I mean, I'm weak now because I'm LA, like I'm adjusted to LA life. So 60 degrees is cold for me where back in the day it wasn't. So not only is it cold up there and it's a little wet and dewy and whatnot, and it looks like it's on the verge to like thunderstorm. Already at the start, there was over 500,000 people in attendance. So I heard those numbers at the start. And I'm, of course, you know, in my car under an umbrella talking to Martin Yan, chef, executive cook, who is the honorary. And I'm like, okay, 500,000, cool, you know? And it wasn't until we started on Market Street, as we made our way to Union Square, where where we kicked it off live at 6 p.m. with the fireworks and everything. But coming down Market Street, I was like, oh, my God, there are so many people here. And I'm doing my wave and trying to look all calm. And, and inside, I'm like, there's a lot of people here. And then we get to Union Square and there's more people there. And they have all the lights and all the all the local stations are going live. And, you know, I'm on camera and I'm, I have to light the fireworks and I got to get back in. And then actually my my band from my high school, I went, like you said, Archbishop Burn high school. They were they put them behind my car. So we have the largest marching band in the city. And I'm so proud of that, even though I was never a member, I'm just so proud of it. And we had, you know, the the flag girls were out there and then, you know, our conductor and then the whole band. And it was. I remember just looking and seeing the grandstand, seeing Macy's, all the cameras and then my high school band. And of course, I had my family in the car with me and I was like, yo, this is huge. Like this is so I feel stupid right now because I didn't realize it was going to be this grand. And that's just the start. The parade literally from start to end in the car took about an hour and a half. And the amount of support and people that came out was mind blowing from my POV because I've always been on the side, right? Like everyone else, but to be in the car where everyone's looking at you and waving and yelling and screaming bolo at random points of the parade, you know, it was so cool. It was so surreal. And it really got me emotional because of all the support that despite the weather, you know, and despite, you know, post pandemic environments. And, you know, because this was the first real parade that they've had since COVID You know, they had one last year, but it was still kind of restricted and people were very kind of like on the fence about going, it just felt so alive. And I was so, I felt so blessed to have been asked. And I literally going through the parade, I was like, this is one of those, Life once in a lifetime moments, literally. and that's what I said as soon as I finished. I said that was that was a moment that will last a lifetime because I had no idea how to like what I couldn't have predicted the feeling, the vibe, the energy. And I'm even more grateful now to have been elected to do that. And I just can't thank the committee, the city of San Francisco, Alaska Airlines, and just everyone that came out for just showing up. Cause it was alive. It was crazy. It was so, it was so much fun.
0: Wow. 500,000. That is a lot. When you, when at you think least, of that number, it's like, like, I feel like it's, that's just a number when you, when people say it to you, it's like, Oh, okay. That's expected. Right. Until you actually get there and see yeah. 500,000 heads, 500,000 human beings. Like, like
1: yeah. oh that is God. insane. And the committee kept apologizing to me after like, I got done and I went to the to the there's a VIP tent for us to watch the the rest of the parade come by and they're like rich we're so sorry if it was if it didn't rain we would have had a bigger turnout and I was like this is this is big enough like to 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 think that that is usually doubled on like a dry saturday night let's say in san francisco is is I can't fathom that so again just thankful to have had the opportunity a little embarrassed to say I didn't know it was going to be that huge, but so happy that I was able to do it.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, as you know, I I think I told you before, but I was born and raised in San Francisco. And mm-hmm. I think growing up in San Francisco is a big part of the reason why I've always been so proud to be Asian, you know, and yes, the Asian American totally. community in San Francisco is just so strong and, you know, so tight knit. And I love, you know, the fact that the Asian community will come out and show up. If, you know, if community is out there, like if there's anything that, um, that they can do to help the elderly community, whatever it is, like any, any initiative people are putting out to help the Asian American community. We always come together in San Francisco. And that's what I love so much about it.
1: Definitely. I agree. I agree with you hundred percent on that. Yeah.
0: So Rich, I have one last question for you. And that is, what do you have in the pipeline now? What are you currently working on, and mm-hmm. do you have any last remarks for our listeners today?
1: Sure. First thing, what am I working on? Well, it's some as we always say, it's delayed, right? So something I did work on is coming out actually this month in February. I was I had the opportunity to work on Billy Crudup's new show on Apple TV Plus called Hello Tomorrow, and that I believe is going to be available on Apple TV's platform on the 23rd, I believe I could be mistaken, but it is definitely this month. I can't say much, but I play a really, I play a different character in the sense to where he's athletic, but if you haven't seen me in this uniform is what I've been saying to friends. And it, it was, it was fun. I was able to shoot it simultaneously while shooting partner track, which obviously already came out. So it was just a really good experience and obviously happy to be part of the Apple family, the other thing I have been working on, I've been more involved is the video game world. And I finished one game last year and I'm currently working on a and a big one right now that due to the NDA and all that good stuff, I can't really comment on but it's it's a sequel, I can say that to a game that's already out that has a insanely big fan base. So I'm just really proud to be playing this character to have been cast for this character. Ironically, you know, they don't usually always cast based on physicalities because usually, you know, as the voice actor and as the motion capture person, you don't need to, they can change the way you look, obviously, right? This guy looks like me. It's really weird. Like it's it's very cool cuz I always joke like oh they cast me because I look like the the graphic which is usually the opposite, right? It's usually some unassuming person who ends up being the superhero, right? In, in in the game world. So um excited for that. We're currently working on that right now in LA. Um what else? Also developing a passion project of mine with an up and coming writer director that we will hopefully bring to san francisco it it takes place. it's written based on being in the city and we are going to start principal photography for the short version in later this spring but we've already been working on the show which we would like to bring to the city next year so again no promises yet but the momentum we've already created and buzz is is great there's been a lot of great feedback and that's where we're able to do what we're doing already. Just the investors are ready, certain production studios are ready. So couldn't be more excited to have that in the near future. Um, Also waiting to hear, see if Asian baby girl will go to series. Um, We should be hearing quite soon. So that would be very cool. Like I said, it would bring another Asian demographic community to the forefront. I think a story that definitely needs to be told um, a story that obviously makes me feel old because it's about high school teenage girls, and I'm one of the OG guys in it. But that's fun. And, um, you know, just uh, some other things going on right now that would be a little bit premature to talk about. But I like I said, the momentum has been going for me for a while. I couldn't be more thankful, grateful for this opportunity to just be working as an actor in Hollywood. Ironically, some of my projects are, you know, on large platforms, but you know, when I'm at home training, going to class, working with my coaches, work is work. And so as long as I'm working and keeping my training going and the study of the craft alive and, you know, and again, being able to pay the bills, like, you know, there's no complaints here. So like I said, a lot of things up and coming, but a little bit premature to discuss them, but just thankful to be in the position I'm in.
0: Well, we're very excited for your upcoming plans and we can't wait to hear more about it once they're fully announced. Yeah. So where can our listeners find out more about you online, Rich?
1: I'm on all social media platforms at Rich Ting World.
0: Perfect. We'll leave all of that in the show notes. And it was amazing having you on the podcast today, Rich. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.